Okay, guys, if you have a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 5. There are Bibles as you come in the room, just to your left as you walk in the door. There are also uh, Bibles that you have access to online. You can feel free to turn your phones on and use your device as well. We're in Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. But before I read God's word for us, I'm going to pray. So would you join me in prayer together? Father, we praise you and we thank you for the work you've done in our congregation, even in the short time that we've been developing a new young church in Owasso. Lord, your spirit is on the move and you're showing us what it means to be fiercely honest and yet grow in our confidence in Jesus and his work for us rather than in our own good merits. Lord, we thank you for the happy news of Jason Starnery's graduation this weekend. Thank you for the hard work he's put in for many, many years to be able to graduate. We pray for him and for Leah and for the kids now as Jason moves on to a new degree program to keep pursuing education so that he might be in a strategic position for your glory as one who knows your word and treasures it in his heart. Lord, we praise you too for, um, for Becky's daughter, Amber, who came through a successful heart surgery this week. Thank you so much that she's born in the 21st century where she can have surgery on her heart, an open heart surgery, and she makes it and she feels great and she's having a Wendy's Frosty just an hour after the surgery. Lord, thank you for the marvels of modern medicine. Lord, I pray that you'll help those of us who are in the midst of those marvels, looking to doctors and physicians for help in our time of pain, that you'll, Lord, remind us that you're with us. That though our ailments and our broken bones and our accidents on the soccer field and our struggles and slipping at home and hurting our hips and, Lord, you know all those things. They never take you by surprise, although they shock us. And I pray, Lord, that as we're recuperating, that you'll take those who are healing and you'll remind them that you're the one who holds us together, that you know us better than any physician or doctor, and you're with us. So, Lord, would you heal those in our congregation who need healing tonight? Lord, I pray for the parents here. I pray that you'll help the moms and dads who are struggling to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Would you remind them that it takes a village, it takes a church to raise your children? And would you forgive us for thinking that we're going to be perfect parents? And would you remind us that we don't want to be parent-centric or child-centric, but we want to be God-centric in the way we raise our kids? And so would you strengthen us, each one of us who have young families, each one of us who have children off at college, each one of us who have adult children, would you help us more and more to give our children to you because they are yours on loan to us? And lastly, Father, we pray that as we look at your word, that you would change our hearts, that we'd walk out of here different because we saw Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you're with us here and that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in Acts chapter five. We're going through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book of the Bible written by a physician named Luke. And the whole point of the book of Acts was to show us The things that not the apostles said and did, not that the church said and did, but what Jesus himself said and did. And Luke writes this to a young man named Theophilus, this young, genteel, young, upper middle class, probably gentleman, who needs to know the history of the church, who's struggling over the claims of Christianity, and so Luke writes it out. And so when you come to chapter 5, 
You come to the, the church in the heart of persecution. And this is what we read together. Let's stand if you're able. We'll read from Matthew, uh, uh, Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. I'll read down through verse 42. This is the word of the Lord. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers carry, uh, were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets. It laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with his officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and a high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us? But Peter and the apostles responded, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnessing to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when the council heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care that you are about to, what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. And he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from all these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a lot of talk these days, friends, about public safety. You know, you go to work, all the guys are at work. You know, the policies that are come to you every quarter about public safety. Wearing hard hats in construction areas, driving with your seatbelt on, making sure you follow the speed limits. Children, you know that when you're at school, your teacher's always telling you to walk on the side of the hallway. She's always telling you not to touch other students. She's trying to help you become safe. And we live in this incredible, incredibly complex world of policy, especially public policy, of how to keep humanity safe. And what's interesting is that when I was growing up as a young boy in schools and elementary, we had, we had two uh, different kind of drills. We had an inside drill and an outside drill. You know, the outside drill was the fire drill, which was always my favorite because you could get outside for a little while and take a break from the hallowed halls of your school. But then the inside drill was, was what? The tornado drill, right? So you, you, know, you, you, get in the, you, you get on your knees in the fetal position, you face the wall, and you find the most uh, secure areas of the school. You know, it's interesting now, in talking to a first grader just the other day, that they no longer have just two drills at the schools. They actually have at least three, maybe four, three, at least three. You've got the outside drill, the fire drill, you got the inside drill, the tornado drill, and you've got the inside drill, the lockdown drill. You can ask a first grader, tell me the difference between a tornado drill and a fire drill, and they can tell you with great precision the difference in the body position and where you go between these different drills. Now, the point is this, that we live in a world that over the last 200 years has made incredible advances in technology, incredible advances in communication, Incredible advances in our ability to interact with each other on so many different levels. But it's funny that our first graders now are less safe than they were 20 years ago. And you would think that with all this progress that humanity has made, that actually there would only be one drill or we would figure it out by now how to keep people safe. Listen, this passage shows us that true safety is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ because the message of the cross of Jesus will never be stopped. Listen, you run insurance. You think about insurance. You think about insuring your roof and your house and your car. You insure your life. You run the numbers. You want the companies on your side. Nationwide is on your side. They even play to you in marketing strategies that we're on your side. The question is, whose side is divine protection on? In this text, you're going to see four different scenes, and you're going to see three different ways that God protects his message. All right? In this world where we're longing for safety, I'm just going to ask a very simple question. 
Are we really safe? Let's look at it. Four scenes, three different ways God protects us. Let's dive in together. True safety can only be found in the message of the cross, and that message can never be stopped. Look at verse 12 down through verse uh, 16. Remember, in the last chapter in the book of Acts, the Sadducees, remember, they were, the, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The Sadducees called together the, uh, the apostles and said, look, stop teaching about this Messiah, this Jesus the Christ. And they didn't put them in prison. They actually went through the, the normal uh, Roman legal system suggested. You threaten someone first, and then if they break it again, then you imprison them. And so here they were, they had been threatened, and then they're out teaching, and they're doing amazing miracles. They're healing people. People who just passed by, you know, Peter's skia in Greek, his shadow. The Greeks thought that the shadow of a person was the extension of themselves. And so if I can just pass through their shadow, then I'll be healed. And it, they were. And here you have the time before God's word was given to us. And the Holy Spirit in his amazing power and might was communicating divine truth through the miracles of the 12 apostles. And now he communicates his miracles through his word. Even his preached word as it comes to you and changes you. But here they are doing miracles for the people. They're being healed. And he's using these miracles to be a front to, to, to communicate the glory of the message of the gospel because you'll notice that they were added to the Lord multitudes of men and women and more than ever believers were coming which means more than 3,000 which is what we have if you run the math in the first five chapters of Acts. The healing ministry drew attention to the message just like Jesus himself did when he was alive. And in this scene, you see who he protects. And you see that God protects his church. That's the first point of this passage in Acts. Listen, God protects his church. Back in John chapter 10, when the gospel of John was written, John wrote that very, very beautiful line that you see in the preparation of worship. I am the good shepherd. And he says that I know my sheep and the sheep know me and what? No one can snatch them out of my hand. And do you know that if you're in Christ, if you believe in the gospel, that though you may feel like Christ is not with you, no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand. It's his grip around you, not your grip around him. Isn't that good news? God protects his church all the way through the Old Testament. Beat down after beat down after beat down. Lack of repentance, Jesus has mercy. Lack of repentance, God has mercy. All the way through, God preserves a remnant of people who are committed to him. Why? Because he has given us the best news in all the world and he's gonna fiercely protect that no matter what. So scene number one is that God protects his church. Scene number two begins in verse 17. They're doing healing ministries. They're doing this amazing work before God's word was written. And then all of a sudden, the high priest and the guys see what's going on. And they run over there. 
And you learn in the second scene that proclaiming and teaching and living out the gospel is going to evoke the jealousy of other people. In scene two, right, which is in verses 17 down through the end of verse 21, you see that when you live out the gospel, when you, when you preach it, when you teach it, you're going to evoke jealousy of other people, of the power people, of the religious. They're going to be jealous because you're teaching something by which they are not in control. And so the high priest runs to them and they say to them, listen, you can't do this. And it literally says in Greek that they set their hands. And in order to make a public spectacle out of them, they pull them into not the prison that was actually in the temple guard. They put them in the public prison. They put them in the prison where people can see them. They put them in the prison where people are, they're exposed. They want to make a laughingstock out of them. And so they parade them in front of the people and put them in the public prison as though to make a public point, much like they used to, uh, you know, uh, use uh, public means of execution on people in order to scare the citizens or the village. This is what will happen to you if this doesn't happen, much like the crucifixion. And so here they are in this public prison and the Sadducees and everybody goes to sleep and then it's amazing what happens next. If you have a Bible, look at it. It says, And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand to the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Listen, they wanted to make a spectacle out of the apostles. And here the apostles are, right? Having been warned, teaching, obeying God, being thrown in a public prison. And who comes to the rescue? True safety is only found in the message of the cross of Christ, and that message can never be stopped. God himself sends an angel into the prison to free them in the middle of the night. And so they take this jail cell, and they open it up, and the people come out without the sentinels even seeing them. They, they lock, this angel locks those doors back. They're securely locked, and there they go at daybreak preaching the good news once again. And what is so ironic is that you find that what God intends for evil or what they intend for evil, God always uses for good. In scene one, you see God protecting his church in that they've been warned. They're doing miracles of healing. God is adding to their number. He's blessing his message. And then you flip the scene and they're in the prison. And an angel of the Lord sends his protection, and he releases the people so that they're out teaching. And then the scene, if you will, switches again. It switches again, and now, if you will, like you're watching an episode, it switches to the temple itself. And here these men are publicly teaching out in the temple. Now, when you think about the temple, don't think about the temple like coming to this church. It's, the temple wasn't like it was one room, and when you came, you saw everybody at the temple because they were all in one place. The temple was more like, like the high school. There were a lot of different buildings, and there were a lot of different cubbies. There were a lot of different places that you could hang out. So these guys were along Solomon's colonnade, or Solomon's porch. It's kind of like being, like these guys were, they weren't at the football stadium. They were actually around by the track building. You've seen the track building, right? They were there. They were preaching. It was the place where people were hanging out, and they were proclaiming the good news. 
So the Sadducees, when they come, they call all of the leaders of Israel. They get the House and the Senate. They get the Council and the Sadducees. They get everybody together because they are perplexed at this time in church history what to do about this motley band of Christians. And so they say, listen, we need as much wisdom at the table as possible. And so they get all of the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees together to go to the prison and to put these men on trial. And it's as though the Lord is setting them up perfectly, isn't it? Because when they get everybody together, the Lord convenes the Sadducees and the Pharisees to talk to these men. They tell the guard, go and get him and bring him out. And he goes in and he finds no one in the prison. And the doors are locked. And of course, you would just be beside yourself like, how did this happen? What's going on? And then Luke adds this wonderful, wonderful literary nuance to the story. He gets a nobody. He's not even named. Just some normal Joe. And he says, hey, I want you to go tell all these really big, powerful people. I want you to go tell these big, powerful people what they're so perplexed about. And so this nobody goes up to the Sadducees and says, hey, yo, like really powerful dude. Like I know I'm nobody, but you're somebody. Like, you know the dudes you're looking for? They're over there preaching the, uh, about Jesus. And so they are enraged because God totally trumps their plan. And so they run over in the third scene of this story and they say to the apostles, you cannot do this. But because these men were cowards and they were afraid of the people who had been healed and who were responding to the message, they bring the apostles to trial but without force. It was normal that they would go and they would bring clubs and they would threaten people by force. That was how they, they did it back then. The temple guard was the chief bouncer of the temple. He was the guy who would always come and grab people by the scruff of the neck and say, you know, to the Gentiles, you're in the court of the Jews, please get out. He would tell, you know, the women, women, you need to stay in the court of the women. You're in the wrong spot. He would tell the non-Levites, you can't come in this area. It's, he was the one that was in charge of who could be where in the temple. And so these apostles who, on their own accord, follow these guys to trial, they didn't have to go, but they did. And they obeyed the authorities to go back to trial because the authorities were scared to death of the people. They were rescued by an angel. They were also rescued by the people of Israel. Listen, I'm telling you the complex narrative of the story to help you see the beauty that God is rescuing his people both through an angel and now he's rescuing them through the people who were, the, uh, the Sadducees were scared to death of the people who they usually had control over. And now they're afraid of being stoned by the people. So God's amazingly creative in how he protects his church, isn't he? So scene one was God protects his church. He's shown you that true safety is found only in the message of the cross and that message can never be stopped. The church is healing people. Jesus is protecting his church. He's extending his message. Scene two is that the high priests come to where they're healing people and they throw them in public prison. And you see, 
that God convenes these Sadducees and Pharisees to put his church in the midst of persecution and he shows them that though they meant it for evil, God means it for good, just like the story of Joseph in Genesis 50. And then the third scene is here they are. They've been rescued by an angel. They're preaching in public and these Sadducees and Pharisees all together, everybody, all the leaders go out to get them and they're trumped by the very people that they're supposed to rule over. And then the fourth scene you get the trial scene. And the irony of what Luke is trying to show Theophilus in Acts chapter 5 in verses 27 on down through 42 is that here's a trial and you have on one side the 12 apostles and you have on the other side all of the Sadducees and Pharisees and the irony of the story that Luke is trying to tell Theophilus is who's really on trial here? On whose side is divine protection? And so let's see how the Lord rescues his apostles again. So here they are. And Peter stands up and he says this famous phrase, we must obey God rather than men. How can they be so bold? It wasn't long ago that they were running. They were running like like mice among cats. They were trying to get out of there. And here they are standing before the most powerful people in the world saying, we will not obey you. We must obey God. And then you see what Peter says next, and it gives us the secret of why he was so bold. Peter says in verse 30, he says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. The word leader in Greek is the word archegos. It's, it's a word that is translated in various ways throughout the New Testament. It, it's found in, back in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, where it says that Jesus was the author of life. He's the author. But here it says that he's the leader. If you have the NIV, it says he's the prince. Commentators are all over the map on what to do with this word because it has so many different variables. You know what it means? It's the Greek term for the heroes of mythology. And Peter is drawing from, he, from Greek mythology to say, you know why we can be so bold before you? It's because we aren't heroes, but we follow the ultimate hero. Jesus is the ultimate hero. And he has rescued his people. And we stand before you amidst the powers of the world, confident that he's going to save us and deliver us. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that, that heroes actually had three characteristics about themselves that, that every hero, Pericles, Hercules, all of them had these same qualities. And here, here they are. We don't know much about heroes today. We just know about stars, stars who value appearance. But heroes in Greek mythology always valued character over appearance. They were always driven by character and principle. You know, today we airbrush and today we do whatever we can do to promote appearance. We market everything in this world. But in, the, in Greek mythology, which Peter is drawing from before these people who would have been familiar with it, heroes were people of character over appearance. Secondly, heroes were people who were, they were, they were loyal to something greater than their own hearts. So they had character over appearance and they had a loyalty to something bigger than themselves. Like today, in the world we live in, 
we all sometimes will live in this veneer of Christianity, but what we really believe is what we want to do. And so the whole, many of us in a postmodern world have these inner voices that speak to us to tell us what's good and what's right, right? Tell you what food to go get. They tell you what to believe. They tell you how to, you know, they, they say pleasure is always best. But in Greek mythology, the heroes were always loyal to some message, something greater than themselves, greater than their own hearts. And so Hercules, right, or Pericles, these great mythological feet, uh, men of ancient Athens, they could actually stand and be hurt and take great cost, and they could even die for the sake of the principle for which they wanted to live. You don't see that very much today. You see people holding their finger to the wind and saying, what's public opinion going to do for me? But the Greek myths of ancient Greece, they, were, they valued character over appearance. All this is in the word archegos. They valued, they were faithful to something greater than their own hearts, even at great personal cost to them, even at the cost of their own life. And lastly, they saw themselves as a substitute. All Greek mythological fi figures saw themselves as a substitute. They saw themselves as a mediator between two worlds of earth and of heaven. And Peter's drawing this out in this term, Archegos, and he's saying, you want to have a real hero? You want to be a real star? You want to really be safe? You look to the ultimate hero, who is Jesus the Christ. And whereas these apostles standing before these really high-powered dudes, the Sadducees and Pharisees, they were saved by an angel, they were saved by the people, and then they really are, they are in dire straits. And, but who stands up but the most unlikely of characters? Gamaliel, who was like the summa cumulati Sadducee. The dude knew everything. He was like on the high court of the council. Everybody looked to him. And he stood up and he goes, all right, let's talk Turkey for just a second. Listen, you know, Thudius, you saw what happened to him. Leave it be. It'll die out. You know, this other Galilean? Oh yeah, he rose up and it petered out also. Men, like when you ban books, they just get more popular. Don't mess with them. They'll die out, which is pretty good wisdom. And here Gamaliel stands up and God uses Gamaliel who hated Christians, who encouraged Paul to persecute the Christians. And Paul, by the way, is amongst these men. Isn't that interesting? We'll read about that later. And Gamaliel stands up and he saves their skin. And this whole story, this whole story in Acts, from verse uh, 14 all the way down through ver verse 12, all the way down through verse 42 of chapter 5, is showing you that in these scenes, these four different scenes, God protects his people by the angel. He protects them by the people. He protects them by Gamaliel. He's trying to remind them that in all of our desire to have a place of safety for our homes and for our children right now today, true safety can only be found in the message of the cross. And the message of the cross of Jesus Christ can never be stopped. God does not promise you that you're going to live until you're in your late 80s or late 90s or your early 100s. He doesn't promise you that. But you know what he does promise you? I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. And no one can snatch them out of my hand.
those who I predestine, Romans chapter 8, I justify. And those I justify, I will certainly glorify, Romans 8.30. God promises you that he will truly save you. And you know what else is great about it? We all want to be heroes. Like kids, wouldn't it be great to be a superhero? It'd be awesome. And here, Luke is saying, you can be a hero. You can be among the stars when you see the ultimate hero who had every opportunity for himself to be saved by an angel, didn't he? But he didn't call down the legion of angels when he was on that cross cursed for us. Who stood before the people who did not protect him but actually screamed, give us the thief and murderer Barabbas instead of you. And he took the wrath of the people who stood before the powerful man amongst the group, Pilate, who didn't have the wisdom to offer good advice for the crowd, but was a coward and gave in. Listen, you're safe in the gospel because your Savior suffered the wrath that you deserve. He took, he took all the dangers of the storm. He took all the dangers of the bullet. He took all the threats of the fire so that you might, amidst your drills of life, know that your true safety is found only in Christ. And the best news in all the world is that he invites you to be a hero together with him. He invites you to stand before men and say, it is better for us to obey God rather than men. And he invites you to have everything you want. We, many of us came to Owasso to have, a, have safety for our children. True safety is found only in the message of the cross. And that message will never be stopped, even if it means you will die. Tertullian said in the third century that he had this curious phrase that the seed or the blood of the church is seed. What he was saying was that the more Christians die and die well, the further the seed of the gospel spreads. True safety is only found in the message of the cross of Christ. And that message will never be stopped. And in the first persecution of the church, which you see in Acts 3 through chapter 7, you find the church with its back against the wall and the Lord reminds them again and again, you want to be secure? You want to be a hero? Look to the ultimate hero, Jesus the Christ. And find your wildest dreams and your hopes satisfied in him. Listen, if you are contemplating this whole idea of Jesus as the hero, I want you to know that the hero stands with his arms wide to you and says, let me deliver you. Get off the treadmill of your works righteousness. You're going to wear yourself out and come rest in my super healing powers that are demonstrated for you on the cross when he, not as a superhero, but as a beggarly criminal was sacrificed for you. The Greek myths were sacrificed for their people. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who doesn't stay dead but rose again for you in love because he wants to know you better now than ever. Will you let him? You don't have a choice. If he's after you, he's going to open your heart. 
but come to him now as you come to the table in repentance and faith and see the great hero, Jesus, your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that like watching a sitcom, seeing these different scenes change in this chapter, Lord, you show us repeatedly different ways that you save your people. You save your church. You love your church. And you creatively saved them with an angel. You creatively saved their skin again with the people. You creatively saved them with Gamaliel. And oh Lord, I pray that those of us who are looking for a hero will look to Jesus, our archegos, our great leader, our prince, our author, our hero, and we will run to him in repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.